Okay, everybody, welcome to the Years of Lead Pod with our fabulous guest, Margaret Kiljoy! Yay! It's me. Hi, I'm Margaret Kiljoy. Fiction author and general delight, Margaret Kiljoy. How are you doing? I'm all right. I'm uh, excited to learn about years full of stuff that, when it gets into your bloodstream, makes you angry. I assume this is a podcast about <laughs> before paint was um, um, better managed and when there was like lead paint everywhere. No, I'm sorry. Oh God, I oh, feel no. I feel terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I feel really bad. This is about political violence in Italy. Oh, okay. Great. Oh, okay. So you're still, you're okay with that. I know a little bit more about political violence than I do about lead paint. And most of the stuff I know about lead paint, I know through people who were involved with political violence, like the Young Lords in um, New York City, where they did a lot of direct action um, healthcare stuff. And actually were heavily involved in getting lead paint out of houses. Oh, I had no idea about I, I didn't yeah. know about that. The uh, Puerto Rican uh, political yeah. organization, left-wing political yep. organization, the Young Lords, getting yeah. that paint off of those houses. Yes. And out of the children's wards at hospitals and shit that they kept taking over. Am I allowed to cuss? I assume this is about you killing are. people, so I'm allowed to cuss. More okay, or less. great. Um... Would you call them Leadites? <laughs> Come on. No. I've been, <laughs> I've been saving that one up for a long time. Uh, okay. All right. So. Is um, that, wait, is that the people who are like, don't let the drones take the killing people job from us? The Leadites? <laughs> They're like the out of work special ops guys who are like, God damn it. <laughs> yeah. Stupid drones taking our jobs. <laughs> The the workerists of the U.S. <laughs> Navy SEALs. Yeah, yeah. Once they unionize, it'll all be fine. What are we actually going to talk about? So, I mean, I guess we're going to talk about political violence in Italy. Right. So the previous episodes have left off talking about mass repression uh, in 1979, which I think you're somewhat familiar with. Or the audience by now is pretty familiar with this um, April 7th trial where warrants are issued and Dozens of leading intellectuals from the extra-parliamentary left in Italy are arrested. Uh, most of them, pretty much all of them, had been leaders of the group Potere Operaio, or Workers' Power. So we're talking about okay. Tony Negri getting arrested in Padua, along with a lot of sort of his comrades and, and uh, a lot of people who weren't his comrades and who he hadn't been really in touch with since 1973, uh, but who he was accused of being in illegal association with. All right. Yeah. Um, since I'm not caught up, are these autonomists? <laughs> yes, um, kind of. Yes, yes. So Tony Negri was an old school workerist, right? 
Um, okay. He uh, sort of came up in the intellectual circles that formed out of the Communist Party and to a degree out of the Socialist Party after uh, the Hungarian Revolution and the Communist Party's pathetic response to it in 1956. Mm-hmm. So basically, okay. they thought the Communist Party was a bunch of crappy Stalinist bureaucrats. Tankies. Mm. Since, yeah. Since that's where the word comes from is the 1956 uprising. I know very few things, and this is one of the things I know, so I got really excited about it. Yeah, okay. yeah. So they were against the tankies, and they believed that it was time to reconstruct a Communist Party from the ground up by returning to the subjectivity of the mass worker. Uh, basically, okay. like the Communist Party had basically overthrown its own constituency, and it was time to rebuild sort of the identity of, of the working class. Okay. Um, and and this is, this is called workerism? That's called workerism, yeah, yeah. And it was really like these kinds of ideas that set the stage for what became Potere Operaio, um, especially after the potato th- operators. Mm-hmm. The potato operators in 1969. Um, what does it actually stand for? Workers' power. Oh, okay, cool. Potere, like potency. And oh, like Potter in Spanish, only yeah. Italian instead. And Great. Operaio, like operation, but the workers. Mm-hmm. Spec ops. Hmm. I don't know what that is. Uh, like special operators. I'm trying oh. to make. I'm trying to do a callback to the people running around with guns who are mad about the drones. Sorry, uh-huh. please continue. No, this is this is good. This is a good way to start this episode. We are right on track. Uh, <laughs> I think I'm caught up. So right. yeah, we so got our in trouble. Uh, Negri, and then we have um, some other people who are also involved at the the ground floor of Potero Operaio. Uh, who were also arrested, people like Emilio Vesce, Luciano Ferrari Bravo, Lauso Zagato, and other folks like that who are less known. But um, people you might know of or have heard of, uh, Nani Balestrani, who wrote a really I've good book. I've only known Negri so far. Uh, Oreste Scalzone and Franco Piperno. Um and a few other people, Paolo Virno. If you've read like about the Italian autonomous movement, you've probably read Virno. Um, okay. So anyway, yeah, the whole thing is kind of this really messed up situation where they're accused of, and Negri especially is accused of leading the entire autonomous movement, which is mm-hmm. a ludicrous charge from the beginning. <laughs> but yeah, but also having a second and third floor where the red brigades are actually part of this pyramid of insurrectionary organization completely run by Tony Negri. Okay. So they're saying they're accusing Negri of leading the red brigades, but also basically leading all of terrorism in Italy, which was then called terrorism. Uh, Its proponents would call it the armed struggle. Right. In which which is a lot of work. Like, he's, he's also, like, writing. And I, I can't imagine. I'm too busy writing to lead yeah, multiple it, armed organizations. All of which have completely opposing ideas. Yeah. While also, you know, um, being part of the general autonomous strain, which says neither for the Communist Party nor the Red Brigades. Um, yeah. 
So just playing of... all sides. Okay, I have one more question about all this. I only know a little bit about this time period. Um, my my one question is: Does this relate or not relate to the play "The Accidental Death of an Anarchist"? Oh, so that's really interesting. Uh, Dario Fo and Franca Rame were uh, really sort of popular theater people at this mm-hmm. time, and they wrote a play called "The Accidental Death of an Anarchist" to sort of satirize the um, the death of. Um, a railroad wor- worker, a rail worker. Um, so it is this Pinelli. time period, yeah, yeah. where Giuseppe he like fell out of a, fell out of a window because the cops threw him out a window. But everyone was like, "Oh, whoops!" This is yeah. It, it was actually even at that time a source of controversy as to what exactly did happen. Uh, in fact, one person said that Negri told him that uh, Pinelli probably did commit suicide out of the window because the cops threatened to expose that he was an informer but there's no evidence oh, there's no evidence to show that he's an informer and this is also oh god so they're fed jacketing what, the dead yeah and this okay. is also but this is also uh hearsay about what negri said to somebody so there's no mm-hmm. real evidence to show that negri really believed this um okay but yeah, but it, this is that time period. This <laughs> is the period. Bloody of awful. This arm struggle. The okay. worst thing of all time. Yeah. Um, and Although that, there's a really funny BBC version, you can look on, you can watch on YouTube. Mm-hmm. That happened. Um, yeah, the English have actually done a pretty good job, sort of staging Dario Fo and Franca Rame stuff. Um, I'll tell you two really awful stories about this. Uh, the Pinelli was killed or or fell out of the window or killed himself or what have you. This whole thing, mm-hmm. Pinelli's death, happened mm-hmm. during a roundup of anarchists as a result of their uh, suspected involvement in the bombing of the um, Banco Agricultura <laughs> uh, in um, Milan, in the Piazza Fontana, which killed, you know, I think four. I think it was 16 or 17 people, injured 88 people, um, uh-huh. and was carried out by fascists. So there was yeah, that was okay. A subversive yeah, plan by the secret services to blame um, anarchists for the bombing that yeah. they knew was carried out by actually the people that they knew quite well in the fascist group Ordine Nuovo. Because overall, anarchists have generally tried to not kill random people in our in the bombings that anarchists have done. Obviously there's exceptions to that, but there's, I I know more about early Italian. Like I know like Malatesta's quotes about all of this shit. Um, But anyway, okay. I think I'm caught up. Malatesta got uh, thrown in jail because he was suspected of involvement in, I think it was a bank bombing in there. And maybe it was the early period of the fascist era. Um, it was like a mm. very misguided action um, that hurt a few people, and they used it to round up a whole lot of anarchists, including Malatesta. So he he was not very disposed to that sort of activity. <laughs> yeah, he wrote a bunch of different essays about uh, in response to um, uh, what's the guy who there's no innocent among the bourgeoisie, the French guy who bombed a cafe. 
Oh, um, Ravishall or something like that? No, he's, he's, he's a couple steps down from Ravishall. It's like Ravishall did this thing and then he got assassinated. So someone like blew someone up because they killed Ravishall. And then so Emil Henre oh. went and did a thing because someone did a thing because someone did a thing. Mm. And then he, it was one of the first times that uh, propaganda of the deed was used to target the bourgeoisie as mm. as a class mm. rather than individuals. Mm. And people weren't into it. And Malatesta was like, what the fuck are you doing? And wrote these like really nice essays around how we shouldn't kill random people. And also it's not a coincidence from my point of view that Emile Henre was the first propagandist of the deed to come from the upper classes himself. Yes. Um, so yes. for him to say there's no innocent among the bourgeoisie is like a fuck you dad. Or rather my dad <laughs> right. got kicked out of the bourgeoisie because he... Uh, anyway, yeah. this is completely yes. unrelated. This is about a hundred years no, no, off no, 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 from no. what it we're is talking related. about. It, because in fact, the Piazza Fontana bombing did involve uh, one guy, it seems, who had been in anarchist circles and he was one of the guys who was very adamant about kind of violent activity and taking the struggle one step further and stuff like that. And actually, mm -hmm. Pinelli, Pinelli didn't like him. Uh, they got in an altercation oh, at good one guy, point. Pinelli. Uh, Valpreda is his name. And uh, he got implicated, not necessarily because he was directly involved, but because his organization was sort of... Uh, infiltrated by Ordine Nuovo and Avanguardia Nazionale. So okay. the, Who are the, the biggest fascist paramilitary organizations. Yeah, okay. So it's that kind of talk, that kind of like strident kind of attitude and, and violent sort of uh, propositions about these kind of random attacks that can open the door to getting in a yeah. whole lot of trouble and getting all your friends in a whole lot of trouble too. Um, yeah. So um, at any rate, the okay. Piazza Fontana bombing is actually very central to all of this, right? Because uh, it had happened 10 years prior, and it really led to this eruption of the extra-parliamentary left toward fear and secrecy on one hand and like mm -hmm. a profound militancy on the other hand because they felt that the entire state had basically risen up against them due to this terrorist attack that they had nothing to do with so mm -hmm. they increasingly understood this conspiracy to be underway and in some in a lot of cases that tendency tended to draw them into the wrong conclusions about what was taking place but it really scarred them very deeply and i'll talk i'll talk a little bit about uh how that kind of passed into this problem um, but for now, in 1979, Negri is in Rebiba prison. Uh, and then uh, at first he's very alone. Um, he's like got uh, his, what is it, 15 by 15 foot cell. Um, but he's transferred and uh, some of his friends join him uh, from Potero Parayo experience and they sort of reach this comradeship and uh, manage to get by a little bit better uh, while behind bars. And he takes, they take up this kind of collective defense of uh, aggressive sort of political prisoner defiance against the state. Mm -hmm. um, this is called the homogenous area of Rebiba, uh, of course, because they have to use some kind of weird jargon for it. Um <laughs> And 
it, it, it sort of helps them establish a committee and a solidity, you know, behind bars that they're able to use towards the outside in order to channel their message more sort of affirmatively. And their defense attorneys, they have a lot of them, are actually pretty good. So this, you know, it becomes a big scandal. But unfortunately, a lot of Italy is so enraged by all the armed struggle that's been happening that mm -hmm. it's very difficult for them to reach out to the public. Um, the guy who actually put these charges forward is a magistrate named Pietro Calogero. His, like, direct colleague, Emilio Alessandrini, had been assassinated by the left-wing group uh, Prima Linea <laughs> just, like, a few months before. So, uh, so they're not. He's always not really excited about them. He's so mad at them. Like everybody in Italy in 1979 is in a trauma spiral. The whole yeah. country. The whole country is in a trauma spiral. They just the year before had the president of their leading party kidnapped for 55 days and then assassinated. And like one of the dr most dramatic by the left or the right by the red brigades. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's one of the most dramatic periods in 20th century. You know, yeah. so it like literally everybody's completely traumatized. Uh, it would be like if Barack Obama was kidnapped for 55 days and then executed and left in the trunk of a of a Renault fork <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs> or, or like or like a Prius. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like like awful, horrifying stuff. And you would no doubt get a lot of snarky shit from a lot of the, the left. And it would be a very polarizing and, and shredding you know, emotional experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a whole lot of people would be arrested in the aftermath. So that's what was happening. I admit that this is like part of why this style of struggle, whenever I read about it in history, I'm like, this is not a very effective strategy for most people in most times. Um, yes. So. Yes. Well, it's hard to say whether or not they even found it particularly successful. I mean, they declared, the Red Brigades declared success, but it did break them away from a lot of the autonomists. And in fact, it kind of like pulled the drain out from the autonomous movement. Like you were either yeah. in the armed struggle or you were in what be became known as the new social movements, uh, which were mostly guided by like feminism and things like that. Yeah. But the idea of autonomy as this sort of like porous, space between all the different movements that could mediate between factories and the piazza and that could like mediate even between the armed struggle and uh like legit so-called legitimate organizing or just mass illegalism uh it was kind of it had the air oxygen sucked out when moro was assassinated it just felt like so many people were like, we don't want anything to do with the Red Brigades anymore. We don't want anything yeah. to do with the armed struggle anymore. And so, like, we're out, <laughs> you know. There's just, there's so many cases where armed struggle is, or guerrilla struggle in particular, like underground guerrilla struggle by cliques is where social movements go to die, mm -hmm. you know. Yep. And I, like, understand how people end up as the repression, like, cranks up. People are like, well, this is all that's left. And so they go do it. But then at that point, you lose your base of support and propaganda of the deed is no longer propaganda because it is no longer spreading a message. Um, yeah, that's literally exactly what happened. They actually the Red Brigades had called it uh, armed propaganda 
Um, yeah. and, and they completely abandoned the entire practice of armed propaganda uh, in 1978, 1977, 1978, more or less, and just basically declared themselves at war with the state. So they just started yeah. murdering people. Yeah. They became a just... murder gang. <laughs> Hooray! Yeah, but that's not autonomy. Autonomy is a lot more complicated, and and right. like the exact process that you just outlined uh, is what kind of takes place through this narrative. So, um, I want to use the time that we have to delve into. Yeah, some no, I'm sorry. Yeah, you have a story no, no, to tell because yeah. they're no, no, no. There, this is the story. This is their story, yeah. right? Um, there's this guy, for example, uh, who's arrested and and actually thrown into a different prison named Oreste Scalzone, who was one of the founders of Potere Operaio around 1969. And uh, he was arrested. He was in Cuneo prison with a group of other veterans of the Potere Operaio experience. Uh, actually born in central Italy. His father was from the south, which for Italy, that's very significant. Southerners mm -hmm. are, the south is a lot poorer. Um, yeah. So it's, they're seen as more of the working class in, in the 60s. They were more of the like the uh, unskilled labor and so on and so forth, so-called. Yeah. Um, but he's able to go to Rome and he participates with the clashes with fascists on on the campus and in one uh fight he had a bench thrown on him from an upper level like um, <laughs> so he was actually injured uh, and he spent time in the hospital but from then on he was always the guy who had, had a bugs bunny uh incident with the sort of bench yeah thrown no on yeah. Him. yeah 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 so so that's scalzone the guy who got the bench thrown on him and everybody knows him uh he contributed to the journal la classe with Tony Negri and the Workerists, that ran 10 issues and was sort of like the mother of Potero Parayo, as well as the more populist and movementist group Loto Continuo, which was sort of like the DSA of that time. Okay. Um, but Potero Parayo is different. They're like hyper intellectual. And um, so they create this, uh, this publication called Linea di Massa, which only runs three issues, and Scalzone sort of does a graphic what design. What is linea? There's been a couple things. I assume it was line, yeah. but like, so it's like class line? Mass line. Linea di massa. Oh, massa. Okay. Yeah. Sounds like vaguely Maoist in a way. Um, and then uh, Potero Parayo starts its own newspaper in 1970, and Scalzone takes up the direction of the newspaper. Do you know what that one's called? Potere Obraio. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so a lot of this is now kind of converging in Milan in 1969, 1970, where they're trying to draw together Scalzone, who's in the younger generation, with the older guard of the intellectual workerist tradition that Negri is super influenced by. And they assert, you know, they want to understand the subjectivity of the mass worker, uh, avoiding bureaucratization. And one of these guys, uh, Andrea Barzini, writes, It was a small group of characters who could have belonged to Dostoevsky's demons, made up of old, rigorous, and somewhat dusty people who mixed with Scalzone's gang, made of much younger 68ers with a strong sense of self-advertising. Scalzone was always in the newspapers, always, especially in L'Espresso, which continuously interviewed him. So he's Hell like... Yeah. 
So they're radical hipsters. Yeah, they're totally the radical hipsters. He's extremely energetic, flexible thinker. Pancho Parati says he was, quote, very flexible and capable of mediating between the parties. Scalzone was someone capable during a meeting of saying, I have to sleep for a moment. He would go into the next room, sleep for five minutes, and then come back and continue the meeting. (laughs) He had an incredible camouflage ability. He was able to write on a dare in the style of the different masters. He was a tireless journalist capable of writing at a monstrous speed and was imaginative and of all of us, the nicest. Everyone loved him. Legend has it that he was once found sleeping on the toilet. (laughs) So they're absolutely hipsters. Um, Piperno's buddy is Franco Piperno. Sorry, uh, Scalzone's buddy is Franco Piperno, who's also in the, the student movement in Rome. Uh, and together they represented sort of they came to represent this kind of insurrectionary uh, pull within the broader Potere Operaio uh, environment. Yeah. Um, and Piperno, I, I got another good description of Piperno, who's also this kind of classic threadbare revolutionary uh, by Amadeo Timperi. Uh, Franco Piperno was the classic party leader. He had an air of an intellectual and a scholar. He was sort of a master, if not of life, certainly of politics. He focused everyone's attention. He was always up to the task. He was a boy who gave his all to the politics and who risked a lot. He was a bit stingy, so much so that he never offered anyone a cigarette. In fact, he finished (laughs) them and punctually always had them given to him by others. (laughs) They use the word, yeah, I feel like I've met that guy. Yeah, they use the word ragazzo, which is translatable as boy. It's also like, it's like kid. He's like this kid who's like always bumming mm-hmm. smokes from people. Yeah. Um, Pere notes that uh, Piperno had a natural charisma that drew people to him. Uh, quote, when we held rallies outside the factory from the gates, everyone remained speechless. He knew how to involve you. You felt like someone else, proud, powerful, together with your colleagues. He knew how to involve you. I felt strong with him. Um, but he's also kind of a discombobulated guy with, uh, I love that word, with uh, Scalzone. Um, Tim Perry recalls, Piperno was a person who hated getting up early. In fact, he often got the color of socks to wear wrong. Sometimes, and after I, albeit good-naturedly, but not too much, had gotten pissed off, he argued to come to the factory, and he agreed to come to the factory in the morning. So this is also said of Scalzoni, that he would get the color of his socks wrong, if not for his wife, yeah. who basically took care of him. Which is classic, uh, the kind of work that's forgotten about in revolutionary movements. So he works at a factory, is that what you, or is he, or are they saying, like, come to the factory, see how the... Is he also doing working class work, is what I'm asking. First of all, yes, they're such a not feminist organization. Like yeah. even like even for the new left, like they they would call the the women uh angels of the mimeograph machine because the women would always be relegated <laughs> to just mimeographing flyer after flyer uh-huh. after flyer or whatever. Um, they were pretty, they kind of excluded women from leadership. The women were usually like the shadows of the men and the, uh, partners were often referred to as such and such as partner. And it was not very sort of open for them to take central roles that there are some exceptions there. Um, but by and large, it's a pretty sexist organization, I would say. Yeah. And that tracks the guy that i'm when you're like i was like oh i've met this guy before the guy who like bum smokes and 
like kind of gets called a kid and is charming and hangs out outside and whatever like I've met that guy and he's a womanizer you know like <laughs> although maybe this guy's just happily married just sort of takes advantage of you know needs his wife to match his socks for him whatever maybe he's not so bad I'm not trying to I'm not trying to come at this guy <laughs> you know Scalzone no nobody's trying to come at Scalzone uh, Scalzone had an incredibly rough time while he was in jail because he's claustrophobic Oh, fuck. Um, like, yeah, there are stories of Scalzone, like, actually uh, finding himself, like, locked in a room. Uh, mm-hmm. And someone was like, oh, don't, he, there were other people in the room. And they're like, oh, I got the key right here. And he just kicked it open because he's just yeah. literally, like, having an anxiety attack. So, oh, God, yeah, poor guy. He, he had a really rough time in jail. Yeah. Um, he was able, I think, to escape actually in 1981 because people pitied him so much. Just like they let it happen, I guess. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, but no, he, they, they, they're intellectuals. They really kind of like value factory labor, but they, uh, yeah. a lot of them don't work in the factory. A lot of the bonding that takes place in these early years, like 1970, Potero Praia is at the gates of the factory. Oh, I see. It's like, wake up at 5 a.m. when the first shift starts and you're there with flyers giving them out to the workers. Cool. Yeah, trying to stimulate the assemblea, (laughs) the workers' autonomous assemblies that would basically break with the union and demand bigger wages and less work. Hell yeah. That's cool. Yeah, Yeah, they they did a lot of really cool things. Negri is often contrasted with Piperno and Scalzone in terms of his personality and theory. Uh, mm-hmm. He's not. He wasn't really an insurrectionist like they were. They were constantly like, in the future, there's going to be the big insurrection. We're going to overthrow the government with mass participation. Mm-hmm. And he was seen as like more of like the hardcore Leninist in Potero Praia. Um, During the early period, he's an assistant at the Institute of Political Sciences at the University of Padua. And uh, one of the personality traits that stands out in former members' reflections was his laugh, which comes off as alternately cutting or contagious, depending on the teller. And it seems to have marked kind of like a sense of madness that reflected his revolutionary thought. So he's like, he's kind of like portrayed uh, as this fanatic in a, in mm-hmm. some regards but also as a very very intellectual guy who's always got like information on what's happening in the factory you know yeah. he's like directly plugged into everyday struggles of the workers in the factories he's bringing these good ideas uh and like kind of if you can like tolerate the energy that he has you know as an mm-hmm. activist, in a sense, then um, he's a really good person to work with. Um, one of the women, Letizia Paolozzi, recalls, quote, I always had the feeling, and I've always forgiven him for this, that he would have sold me if it would have been useful to him, to anyone. <laughs> I realized it. This never offended me, also because it had an almost paranoid brilliance and a way of proceeding like a desiring machine. I liked the contagious laughter and that language bent towards sarcasm, towards the power that discarded neutral techniques. So, yeah, again, I, I mean, we've all met all of these guys. Yeah, <laughs> totally. 
Um, so this is Potere Operaio, right? These, these are the guys who were thrown in jail in 1979. And I want to kind of trace like what they were up to because in previous Yeah, was he episodes, actually leading any any of these? Was he just the no. thinker? And they were just a, like, we, we fucking hate you because you're the thinker. And then did they actually know that he wasn't leading it and they just wanted him in jail because he was a thinker? Did they actually believe he was up to all this shit? Some of them really believed it, particularly because he taught in Paris from 77 mm-hmm. to 78, um, which is like he was in Paris. He wasn't even in Italy. And he was teaching Spinoza. Like, what, do you, what, what is this? Um, but they all thought that all of terrorism was being coordinated through Paris. <clears throat> just because it's Paris. <laughs> he was leading, yeah, <laughs> to French. Um, he was leading, uh, uh, he was a leader of one segment of Autonomia uh, okay. in, in Milan. Uh, but as I'll show, like, he wasn't even leading Potere Operaio. In fact, he was marginalized. Um, there, so there's Negri's group, uh, the Paduan Leninists. There's the Scalzone Piperno faction in the Roman, out of the Roman student movement, insurrectionist Leninists. And then there's this old guard of like people like Sergio Bologna, who uh, were the classical uh, workerists. Okay. Bologna is in Milan. In Turin, there's uh, this guy named Alberto Magnaghi, who's also um, a kind of a workerist, classicist, <laughs> classical workerist. Um, and he was a member of the Communist Party during the 60s before he joined Potere Operaio. Uh, also one of the arrestees of uh, April 7th. Um, and you can see the within these three fractures uh, that uh, this is all happening in the late 60s. So it's a total sloppy mess. I mean, yeah, you know, the kids are listening to the doors. They're going to wild shows. They're smoking hash. They're not like too interested in like snobby classical workerism. You know, right. they want to get involved. Now, is that part of why, because you're describing something where a lot of tendencies that wouldn't necessarily work together are working together or at least being lumped together. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's sort of interesting about what you're talking about, I I have like some knowledge of autonomous Marxism and autonomism in general. And one of the things that I was really impressed with when I was in Italy was, well, impressed with, actually at the time I probably wasn't impressed by it, um, the fact that all of the like, the amount of left unity was surprising to me there. Uh, like, uh, for example, I would mm. went and presented as, at a, as an anarchist at a farm with a hammer and sickle in the cement in front of the steps, right? And it was like an autonomous conference. And since it was an autonomous conference, anarchists and then like, uh, mm. you know, Leninists and stuff were all welcome and, and presenting and stuff like that. And so like, mm. I had assumed that autonomism was uh, entirely outside of Leninism. Okay, but so my question is, is it that the autonomist umbrella was like a really good space for people who were just like, look, we're just trying to get sh- some shit done. And then also since a lot of the like, the rebels were younger and just like smoking weed and listening to the doors and shit and didn't really care all that much about like the names of ideologies. Sorry, it's not quite a question. It's a yeah, bunch no, of questions. no, no, no. That's exactly what happened. You're exactly right. I mean, okay. So this is proto autonomism, really, and that's why you really kind of have this old guard that uh, feels like okay. it can really lead things. So this is sort of a transition in the new left, at the sort of the birth of the Italian new left. Mm-hmm. Um, 
from this sort of intellectual think tank of uh, operaismo, the workerism, which was mm -hmm. taking place in all of these different journals like um, Classe Operaio with Mario Tronti and uh, Quaderni Rossi with um, uh, Panzieri. Um, and, and so they're like developing through all of this literature, this sort of context through which they can develop a uh a working class communism in opposition to the communist party which was the okay. the, the biggest communist party in western europe at the time and it didn't um, hate them because they were authoritarian communists and leninists it hated them because their specific way in which that they were cooperating with the state and being a political party Mm, they were even the old guard workerists were non-authoritarians and to okay. some extent some extent less authoritarian uh than the roman kids would kind of become okay so in in 1970 they were able to come together through this idea that the slogan of the political wage right so they like they're struggling in the factories, but they're also seeing people outside of the factories kind of suffering, and they're seeing all sort of sets of society being dominated by capital. And they're like, we need to unite in mm -hmm. order to take the struggle from the factory into the streets and, you know, occupy housing, um, get, shit get people get people to to not pay uh rate hikes electricity yeah. and water and that kind cool. of thing um and and so this is also where they sort of abandon they the refusal of work they take up the refusal of work mm -hmm. um and in general like this is this is potere operaio moving into a mass struggle moment um, Scalzone says, uh, quote, the, the neo-insurrectionist line aims to combine the political Lenin with participation in all aspects of the mass movement, from factory struggles to their deployment of the territory on the territory to the political terrain of the National Committee against the state massacre or Piazza Fontana. So in this regard, they're like, we need to fight the state that's trying to frame us while we also fight for housing and also in this in the factories, so they want to unify factory committees that developed in 1969 during a broad workers uprising into a political movement with political committees sort of serving what they would describe as the territory okay this is the heroic phase. A lot of people like would refer to this period in, in 1970 and uh -huh. 1971 as the heroic phase of Potop. Um, the Magnani group is actually winning out here against the Roman insurrectionists and the Negriites. Um, Potop inaugurates a political committee in Rome with some members of the group Il Manifesto, hoping to establish and coordinate a larger kind of extra parliamentary area. And so it's a very hopeful phase with political committees actually spreading around the country. Mm -hmm. And um, the conference that they have then in Milan with Il Manifesto the next year, 1971, actually falls flat. Uh, Manifesto is also a very intellectual group, but they're all, uh, they were all former Communist Party members who were sort of expelled. And so they have this more staid and calm approach uh but they're also really critical their their stuff is is pretty good 
Um, and they didn't like how, how like psycho the the insurrectionists are. Uh-huh. Uh, like Franco Piperno at the conference delivers this speech about how things aren't revolutionary enough, and they need to get more revolutionaries. This kind of enfant terrible, and uh, and and Potero Operaio felt like Il Manifesto were all scared. You know, they didn't want to get their hands dirty. Yeah. So they fell out. And then Magnani resigned. So the the like classical workerist sort of phase is kind of abandoned. Okay. And it's at that point that the insurrectionists really gain the power within the group. So the center of Potere Operaio comes into Rome. Uh, and uh, This is like they're bi- early, mid-70s? Uh, no, 1971. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so 1971, and all of this is happening at very rapid pace. Oh, okay. And um, uh, so it's it's Piperno and Scalzone who kind of hold the reins of the group now because they've shot down the merger with Il Manifesto, and they, <laughs> I don't understand how this happens, but they are like, we need to mount the insurrection, and in order to do that, we need to turn Potere Operaio from like this dispersed mass movement into a Leninist party. <laughs> uh-huh. so, so they're a Leninist insurrectionary party, uh, wins out over the dissenters of the Paduan Negri group and the classical Bologna Magnaghi group. Okay. And, um, and Sergio Bologna leaves the organization by this point. He's like, I'm not going to be part of another Leninist party of like five people. Yeah, know? legit. Uh huh. <laughs> so, so what the thing that the insurrectionists are going to do is they're going to insurrecto, and and so what they do is that's more interesting than Leninism from my point of view. But yeah, like I mean, not better, but. Well, they're, they're still anyway. Leninists. They're Leninist insurrectionists. Yeah, God. All right. <laughs> so, like, we don't need a mass movement in order to have our authoritarian vanguard party. Okay, great. Uh-huh. But they do. So they, they're, they like, still connected to the idea of the mass movement, but they also want to give it a party structure. Um, <laughs> and and But what they really do, it, it, and this has already been formed in 1970, but they reinforce the security services of the organization. The Servizio de Ordine. And um, the main occupation of the Servizio de Ordine seems to have been making Molotov cocktails. Okay. They made crazy amounts of Molotovs. <laughs> like, <laughs> like they made a lot of Molotov cocktails, rooms full of Molotov cocktails. That sounds safe. Um, <laughs> no, it's not. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's complicated, you know? Um, uh, and it's at this point, like, Negri's not interested as much in this kind of stuff, partly because he doesn't want accountability for what the Roman, you know, insurrectos are going to do, because he doesn't uh-huh. know what they're going to do. There's also a veil well, of he's secrecy. he's in fucking Paris, right? Well, no, this is 1971, so he's oh, in okay. Milan. Okay. Um, but he's, he uh, and Padua, but he's like gonna be characterized as this leader of Potero Parayo when he doesn't even know what the security services are doing because they're sort of cloaked in in secrecy right but they all smell like gasoline all the time (laughs) (laughs) yeah so Lauso Sagato who's a former member writes that it remains that the political discourse as a whole was characterized by attention 
uh, a proposal might say, towards mass illegality. So at this point, the insurrectos are, are in charge of the party platform, and they're going towards mass illegality and Molotovs. That's like their slogan, practically. Okay. Um, Sergio Bologna... Be crime, throw Molly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Sergio Bologna calls their approach electroshock for baboons. Um, so, All right. he, so there's a falling out that's taking place there. And on the anniversary of Piazza Fontana, that'll be December 12, 1971, a group of the Servizio de Ordine of uh, Potop are arrested with just a huge amount of Molotov cocktails in anticipation of the demonstration. This gets widely publicized throughout the news. And Tony Negri just weeps for a prolonged period of time after the <laughs> news of the arrests come down. <laughs> He's like really overwhelmed by this point. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> so you have so you have the weeping, crying Potapini um amid the catastrophic rise of uh for some people catastrophic for the people who got arrested catastrophic rise of the servizio de ordine um but it gets it gets a lot crazier so the molotovs i want to explain a little bit because they didn't actually usually throw the molotovs at the cops they usually threw the molotovs in front of the cops at the streets as a defensive mechanism to prevent charges right yeah. So, at, or yeah, to to shield an escape, right? Overall, that is what Molotovs. When people use them in street confrontations, that is like the thing that they're useful for. In the same way that, obviously, I'm only talking about Europe. No one in the U.S. should ever break any laws, and it's legal to throw Molotovs in Europe. Um, you can listen to me. I'm an Italian lawyer, and like the throwing rocks at cops is not about hitting cops with rocks. It's just not. It is about keeping the cops away. Uh, and it is, and, you know, and Molotovs are just a, a, a natural or unnatural, whatever. They are an escalation of that particular tactic. Um, yeah. It is a way to keep people away. If you hear, if you hear a piano in the background, that's my kid practicing a little piano. Hell yeah. Uh, yeah. So we got some, we got some music in the background. I'm not going to tell him to stop. Okay. Um, I'm just going to throw rocks in his direction. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, so within the secret services, uh, this guy named, uh, uh, or I shouldn't say secret services, I should say that within the security services of Potere Operaio, mm -hmm. um, especially in Rome, there's this sort of clandestine, or I should say secret uh, entity that emerges and it's called lavoro illegale or illegal work and it's okay. run by a guy named valerio morucci so morucci is a child of the roman petite bourgeoisie he's not from like a worker family or whatever mm -hmm. very romantic character he's alternatively described as deeply charismatic or somewhat reserved in personal exchanges but also quite flashy he wears like a long white raincoat around Rome. Everybody like knows him in the scene, especially oh, yeah. for his love of guns. Like he's always showing off his guns. Mm -hmm. um, Massimo de Alessandro was the secretary of the Roman section during this period. And uh, he has some funny reminiscences of uh, Morucci. He says uh, he acted a bit like Humphrey Bogart, 
Also in terms of what could then be defined as the management of violence. It was said, for example, that Morucci often threw a Molotov cocktail in the air and then caught it again to see if the kids got nervous. Another, <laughs> another, another episode which I experienced. What a good directly. guy to follow! If you're in a group and this guy's in it, don't do violence on his behalf. No. I don't know what's coming in this oh. story, but if no, you are you in don't. a group and there's a this guy, don't follow him. <laughs> that guy should go off and do things on his own. Uh, so, and he did a lot of things on his own, but, um, another episode, I'm continuing with, uh, uh-huh. D'Alessandro, another episode, which I experienced directly occurred in Via Tasso during a meeting. Someone gave the front door a very violent push with their shoulders. We barricaded ourselves inside. We tried to block the front door because we thought they were fascists. In reality, I later learned it was a kind of a joke by Morucci aimed at studying our ability to react to a difficult situation. Yeah, no, fuck this guy. Like, anyone's like, oh, I'm just testing you. I'm just making sure you're ready for the real militant shit that's coming. Like, no, no, fuck that guy. I mean, maybe he's got, whatever. I'm, I'm jumping to preemptive judgment, but. So, so Marucci gets really close to this uh, exceedingly wealthy publisher named Gian Giacomo Feltrinelli. Mm-hmm. So Feltrinelli's also like this super rich dude with uh like a villa on lake como uh, or no a villa on lake garda actually it was the feltrinelli villa on lake garda that mussolini used when he retreated after being overthrown by the fascist grand council jesus yeah okay feltrinelli's villa um but feltrinelli's a young guy from the younger generation mm-hmm. i'd say like in his late 30s early 40s um, and he has this sort of like idealized image of uh, the partisan resistance. Everybody did at the time, but he takes it to another level and he wants to recreate this partisan group called the Gap that was very famous for assassinating Nazi officers and stuff um, mm-hmm. in order to fight the state. So Feltrinelli creates this group of like surly former partisans to attack the state uh, by bombing electricity pylons and um breaking into the radio waves uh wow yeah and he gets very close to morucci um encouraging potop to take the fight to the piazzas and engage in illegal subversion as well morucci takes this to heart and lavoro illegale like participates in like setting up antennas for radio gap and like doing all of this kind of like quirky stuff um, so at the end of 1971, there's a conference in the Year district of Rome and the illegal work group begins to talk about arming themselves. Most of that's not known to the rest of the group around the country, but, uh, one of the participants, Laponi says that in Rome, the organization of the second level also began with a fervor with the aim of supporting the movement's self-defense with external initiatives. Furthermore, the goal of self-financing began to be set. We began self-financing. We began quite naively. I assume that means robbing banks. Eh, we began quite naively to forge links with the underworld of the neighborhoods. And since we already oh, had shit. a fair amount of experience oh, shit. in the packaging uh-huh. of explosives, we were able to exchange them for oh, money my God. and for the first time. So they're firearms, selling bombs to the mob. Generally old scrap metal left over from the war. So they're just f- great. They're selling bombs for guns to the mob. To, to the mob. 
which is not exactly a left-wing organization in Italy. Well, so here we go. Um, <laughs> Laponi's is actually a really re- interesting reference point for the way that he constructs this understanding of Potere Operaio and their form of armed struggle during their illegal work sort of element. Mm-hmm. Um, he highlights the interesting way, interesting way, uh, Potop related to fascism. He says, uh, quote, and you've met this guy. You, he, <laughs> in reality, Potere Operaio has always stood out from other groups and parties of the left because it did not consider fascism as the main enemy. Rather, it saw it as a residual ideology used instrumentally in the strategy of tension against the movement. It was certainly necessary to defend ourselves, but our real enemy was the most advanced capitalist thought. It's technological development, the attack on the class composition, the role of the state, whose extinction, moreover, our communism still imagined. I believe this is an important distinction even today. Even in demonstrations, we rarely shouted anti-fascist slogans. We thought it was misleading and even dangerous. We had to look at what was happening in the heart of capital, which instrumentally used fascist-type regimes only in the areas of underdevelopment. Even our historical judgment on the 20 years of fascism had been completely original from the beginning when compared to the dominant thought of the left of those years. And it has not changed. If anything, it has deepened over the years. God damn it. So yeah, they're the ones they're the ones who are going around being like fascism isn't the real problem and like if you're, you know, yeah. going up directly against the fascists then you're like not even hitting the you're real doing the capitalists part. work for them yeah. by getting us to fight within amongst ourselves. <laughs> So the theory here is not... Um, Motherfuckers. So they, they don't want to go underground. Uh, Lavoro Illegale don't want to go underground and be clandestine as a small armed group. They want to mm-hmm. help Potere Operaio establish what they call the Red Base, which, ha- ha- which Laponi says, had instead to exercise a direct and mass form of self-government of the territory, from the factories to the neighborhoods, to build a concrete dual power against the authority of the state. So that's their idea. Basically, this okay. is this is the insurrectionists, or this is the like uh, the secret part of the insurrectionism of Potere Operaio, which is sanctified in 1971 at the Rome Conference in September, um, to the chagrin of the the Negri faction in Padua, which was very leery of the associations that were beginning to form within the group. And here's the, I'll I'll dive a little bit deeper into uh, what illegal work was doing with the mafia. Hooray. Um, So in one case, Morucci calls up a few friends. They pretend to be an architecture firm, and they bust in to a couple of designers, immobilize them, and steal what they were making, which in this case was a a fake $100 bill the size of a drawing board. Uh, Okay. (laughs) I don't know why. This is, like, the weirdest sort of, like... Because they were going to like shrink it down and that was like the way to do a good forgery or was it like an art project? I don't know. I don't understand that one personally. It's pretty weird. Um, But the mob wanted them to do it, so they did it. They also carried Mm -hmm. out an attack to frighten some nightclub owners in the port of Gaeta. And afterward, the crime... (laughs) (laughs) Afterward, yeah, so they're terrorizing nightclub owners. And afterwards... on behalf of the mob, yeah. Yeah, well, the mob bosses invite them to a restaurant afterwards, and they do, like, toasts and, quote, declarations of eternal friendship. So, And they left with They walked away with, like, a bag full of guns. God damn it. it gets, I, okay, go ahead. Yeah, no, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. 
in one case, Marucci also got a truck of semi-automatic pistols destined to fascists in Reggio Calabria to stop off in Rome and deliver three packages to Marucci, who apparently the delivery guys actually believed was a fascist. Like, full on, they were like... Dealing, and Laponi recalls, quote, wow. Valerio, in fact, dealt with these people like a perfect fascist. He was haggling over price. There must have been about 50 guns. Valerio then resold them at double the price to other left-wing groups. <laughs> <laughs> so. Oh, my God. Uh-huh. Great. Yep. So, Lavoro Illegale. Another guy who's attracted to the so-called red base of Lavoro Illegale is named Carlo Fioroni. Actually, even sketchier uh, and creepier than Valerio Marucci. Probably Mm -hmm. involved in the underworld, uh, but he's also involved in Feltrinelli's Gap. And in fact, when Feltrinelli is blown up while trying to plant a bomb on the electricity pylon outside of Milan... Whoa, the rich... The rich guy was, like, actually thrown down himself? Yeah, and he blew himself up. I, or so know, it would seem. Good, Not good on him, but <laughs> at least he wasn't just doing the I'm rich, everyone else do this shit for me. No, he went deep. Feltrinelli yeah. went real deep. He, like, shaved off his head like Che Guevara. Like, he was, like, he, he definitely went into it. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, when he uh, apparently blew himself up, um, on March 14th, 1972, authorities traced the minibus connected to the incident to Carlo Fioroni. Uh, he was arrested and interrogated, but his POTOP buddies were able to exfiltrate him to Switzerland. <clears throat> okay. During that period, while he's in uh, Switzerland and after the um, Feltrinelli death, Poterio Praio's Lavoro Illegale actually spins out another secret subgroup which participates in even more illegal operations. So, like, the illegal or illegal work. Mm-hmm. We call them illegal or work. I mean, at this point, you have to just start murdering people before it's more illegal than <laughs> being a mafia enforcer and a drug runner and an explosives exploder. That does happen later, but not within Poterio Praio. But the guy's... The, the very, very sketchy guy does very, very sketchy things. Um, okay. Surprising the world. Is he, like, trafficking? I'm, like, trying to come up with, like, what's worse than... All right, go ahead. So, Morucci and Piperno both opposed bank robberies and that sort of thing. Morucci um, mm-hmm. thought it was too risky. Piperno thought it was counterproductive. Um, yeah, the cost-benefit analysis is not very solid. Yeah, and so illegaler work uh, has to kind of do it more secretly. Um, but before they get up to um, before they get up to bank robbery, they pull off a weird art heist. Okay, which is kind of cool. Um, yeah, I'm into that. Yeah, <laughs> one of them knew an art dealer named Gattuso who had a villa out in the hills of Varese. The group sends an unassuming guy to investigate, and he gets the custodian to show him the works of art inside the villa. It's totally empty. Uh, Gattuso must have been away. So, and the ca- caretaker lived out in the gatehouse. So the Potop gang cuts across the yards of various villas to access Gattuso's uh, villa from the back, bypassing the gatehouse. They use a ladder to scale the wall. Laponi's the only one there who's armed. He's got a PPK. And the two comrades enter by opening the shutters and breaking the glass. Uh, they thought quite silently. 
-hmm. while Laponi is looking out, uh, the other two open the frames of the paintings carefully and roll them up. Then out of nowhere, the lights come on and this dude comes out with a rifle pointed in their direction. They jump out of the first floor window and run to the ladder. Does that mean, wait, is this, is that an American first floor or a European first floor? Oh, that's a really good point. It must have been the second floor. Yeah. Yeah. Must have been the second floor. Um, so this dude chases after them with his rifle. Laponi clock cocks his PPK and tells him to throw the gun away, which <laughs> he actually does. <laughs> so the Holy guy with shit. the rifle's like, fuck it. Laponi climbs up the ladder and the three get out. Okay. So they actually do do this art heist and, um, and then they rob the bank. They're almost getting yeah. shot in the process. They make off with 20 million lire, um, which is a good chunk of change. A few ten thousands of dollars, I think. Um, and they get a new base. So this group becomes known kind of as the Como Milan group, grows to about 20 members, and even holds meetings on Lake Como with Mario Moretti and Alberto Franceschini of the Brigate Rosse, the Red Brigades. Okay. So here, here we actually do have a little bit of an overlap between the illegaler work section and the Red Brigades, but doesn't have anything to do with Negri. Okay. Um, however, Fioroni returns to Italy uh, and hangs out with this group on Lake Como for a few months before shifting over to Negri's group in 1973, uh, which is much to Negri's misfortune. They... Without Fioroni, they raid a fascist office and carry out another bank robbery, which goes horribly wrong. Two of their comrades are arrested. One is injured, and it puts a damper on the whole POTOP organization because it comes out that the guys who were robbing this bank were part of POTOP. Um, in turn, POTOP disavows them completely, and that alienates the whole illegal sector because they were hoping that Potero Praia would be like, okay, yeah, we like know who these guys are and just comrades who went astray and like we feel bad and all that kind of stuff but instead they were just like screw these kids okay about bank robbery in italy Mm -hmm. Uh, one time i was on a a tour of the naples underground Mm. and the tour guide knew that me and, and two of my Italian friends, and so he mostly just talked in Italian with my friends the whole time while the other americans are like what the fuck you know and but he kept talking about how really his real goal in life and he would say this in english and all the american tourists were terrified he was like his real goal in life was just to rob a bank get away with it and move away somewhere <laughs> and so i have it in my head that this is like the standard normal like italian guy's dream just be- <laughs> because of this one guy and so don't don't dissuade me of that Oh, I don't Dear think I can. listener, yeah. 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 All right. I, I won't. Nothing in this story would suggest otherwise. Because yeah. um, these guys, Potere Abraio, really just mainstream dudes. Nothing odd or interesting about them whatsoever. Yeah. So, um, as you can probably imagine, things are kind of starting to split apart at the seams, or have been splitting apart at the seams for quite a while. Um and this is 1973 by this point. Uh, this is the first year that comrades in Potera Praia are actually armed during protests. 
Mm -hmm. uh, and this is sort of setting off a lot of controversies. There are chain reactions that start to happen as a result of vi fascist violence and then counter-violence and all of this stuff taking place. Also, the attempted merger between Poterio Parayo and Il Manifesto spawns this other group called the Collettivi Politici Operai in Rome, which is sort of one of the origin points of autonomia, um, based on the kind of idea of the mass illegality in, and the uh, unity of factory organizing and the organizing of precarious labor and sort of the so-called defense of the territory and like having a nebulous sort of uh, network assemblage rather than a party form and stuff like that. So um, a lot of people are leaving Putera Praia and going into that kind of scene or having kind of like a dual membership type of situation. And um, in the spring of 1973, Putera Praia gets hit really bad because um, the Roman section, uh, their Servizio de Ordine had a uh, there were a few kids who, like, wanted to be part of the Servizio de Ordine. It's not clear if they actually were um, or if they were just wannabes. They were, like, high school students, a little older. And um, they tried to set the door of the head of the neighborhood section of the fascist party on fire. And the, okay. incendiary, the incendiary device leaked under the door. <laughs> the incendiary device leaked under the door and caught the apartment on fire and the guy escaped with his daughter and wife but his two sons died in the fire one of them was like 18 and had been a member a leading member of the fascist youth group but the other one was like eight years old yeah so now I, now I feel bad for having cheered this on. Uh huh. <laughs> well, in the early seventies, almost all of the the violence, the political violence, is in Italy was carried out by the fascists. Um, yeah. There was a lot of like for the high school students, there was a lot of like bullying of the few like fascist students who were around. But in the political moment, the fascists were responsible for a huge proportion like an overwhelming proportion of the violence and so this kind of thing like here and there you know was seen as very heroic um until this incident right, right. and and the incident was like cold water in the face for pretty much the whole movement and um good it, it, it like set the stage for the dissolution of the entire organization um you have uh, Tony Negri, who's kind of been alienated from the center of Poterio Praia's power um, in Padua, supporting a Assemblea Autonoma in the Porto Marghera port of Venice. And so they're doing like petrochemical worker organizing in contradistinction to the union, pushing for like better health um uh, provisions and also like environmental reforms okay um which is also part of like where environment and like labor claims sort of meet in the uh, early autonomia movement because assemblea autonoma is like another node of the origination of um of uh, autonomia 
And so there's this thing going on, and, and whereas Scalzone and Piperno still believe they're creating a structured political party that's going to insurrect, um, Negri believes that the party form is possible, but it has to come from the ground up and basically formulate through mass work, through mass uprising and, 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 and struggle, uh, and give and, and the intellectuals have to like articulate and give it kind of direction. Do you see what I okay. mean? Yeah. So, yeah. Basically finding like the best way to justify something that is otherwise complicated and hard to justify, it seems like. So he's I he's just like Negri's sort of like Like how do we do the, this as unevil as possible? Yeah, like and this is also what gives him this reputation as the mastermind of all of the political mm-hmm. insurrection because he's like figuring everything together as the formulation of this new kind of uh, revolution. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so they end up converging at a conference in a seaside place called Rosalina. And uh, it's like the worst meeting of all time. So the... the <laughs> The the arson is, is like casting a pall over everything. Morucci interrogated the subjects at gunpoint. He claims other people say is bullshit, but he claims that he like interrogated them at gunpoint in a very dramatic fashion, um, and they end up like fleeing the country. The, the high school kids who yeah yeah attacked a fascist and did it wrong. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know. Yeah, the conference, Scalzone remembers the, quote, poison words, the coldness between us, someone's voice breaking into tears, the sense of leaden pall, and the anger at seeing it used in political battle. Lanfranco Pace, another Potapini in Rome, recalls, quote, I remember a tearful speech by Franco Piperno at this night meeting in which he made a mea culpa about past mistakes with great dignity trying to get back to the situation. In reality, Negri had already prepared the split. So, so Negri ends up going to Milan again and taking control of the journal Rosso. Um, what does that Rosso becomes, mean? Red? Red. Yeah, uh-huh. red. So that becomes a major reference point for the countercultural position with autonomia. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas the Roman insurrectionists kind of try to hang together and keep Potop alive a bit with a publication called Linea di Condotta, um, Line What's of Conduct. Cool, thanks, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that attracts some former members of Lotta Continua as well. They're the sort of more mass based populist entity. Uh, it gets the involvement of Piperno, Scalzone, and Morucci. Their idea becomes to create the Comitati Comunisti per il Potere Obraio, like these communist committees that will stick mostly to direct and violent intervention in factory struggles. Okay. Mid-sized, mid-sized factories where they can really have an impact. So they're like, they start kneecapping people. Piperno leaves actually early on. <laughs> Italy is the leader of the leftist yeah. kneecapper. Yeah, yes. Um, they, they, uh, Piperno leaves there early on, but do you the... think it's because of the mafia thing? Do you think that's like why Italy's into the kneecapping? Like, the is that they had this, like, do you think that they like culturally inherited it from the mafia, or do you if think that the mafia and the Italian anarchist or Italian autonomists are inheriting it from the same Italian source? Hmm. It's hard to say. I mean, the IRA were really into kneecapping, too. 
And the IRA okay. were really weird about kneecap. They were like weirdly into kneecapping. They had like dozens of different ways that they would choose to kneecap you. If they wanted to kneecap you, <laughs> they would do it differently. Like sometimes uh-huh. they would put the gun behind the kneecap and just blow your kneecap off your leg. Like they had different, they had, yeah. So it's all not right, necessarily right. just an Italian thing. The Irish got really into it too. Okay. I yeah. I'm basing this on like there's I don't know if there still are there were some like Italian I think anarchist or autonomous prisoners somewhat recently who are like in jail for like kneecapping nuclear executives or whatever. Yeah, they'll do that. Anyway, so so yeah, so, linea di condotta with mm-hmm. the Comitati Comunisti per il Potere Operaio. It became uh, sort of subsumed within this larger uh, network called Senza Tregua, which means like no mercy or no respite. <laughs> uh-huh. and, and that becomes its own heteroclite area with one foot in autonomia and one foot in the like pure armed struggle type of situation. Okay. But even since a tregua cracks up within a couple of years, the militants kick out Oreste Scalzone for being too intellectual. And he goes on to do his own <laughs> thing with another militant group. When Scalzone is kicked out, Morucci spins off of uh, Senza tregua into his own armed group, which then enters the Red Brigades. And meanwhile, Piperno and Lanfranco Pace start up a different publication called Metropoli, which is militant, but also kind of doing its own thing. So they are, Pace and Piperno end up actually trying to mediate between the Socialist Party and the Red Brigades during the negotiations to save Aldo Moro's life during the 55 days of his kidnapping. Oh, shit. Okay. Which shows that they, they knew, because they knew Morucci from the Rome days of the Potere Operaio experience. Right. So they knew Marucci and they were able to go back and forth between Marucci and his partner, Adriana Faranda, on one hand and the Socialist Party on the other hand. Yeah. Um, although they didn't succeed. No, they didn't really succeed. Yeah. It was kind of a devastating split. And it also led to uh, Marucci actually leaving Potero Braio or sorry, <laughs> Marucci actually leaving the Red Brigades um, and Faranda. They were both like. We can't do this anymore. And uh, and remember Carlo Fioroni, the the sketchy McSketcherson who ended up in the white raincoat guy coming back. Hmm? The white raincoat guy. No, that's Marucci. It's Fioroni. Oh. Fioroni is the guy who was involved in the Lavoro Illegale, but also in the Gap. He was oh, okay. the one who they traced the minibus back to. Yeah. Um, okay. And he had to flee to Switzerland, and then he kind of gravitated to Negri's group. And engaged in the subversive element tied to Rosso, the journal. Uh, and in that context, he allegedly masterminded the murder of a young man from the upper class who was trying to leave the area of autonomia and go straight. Yeah, that's some fucking... Yeah. Yeah. This was... Uh, I wish that Saronio. kind of shit didn't always happen. Yeah, Saronio was, uh, was basically... Uh, trapped he was kidnapped they were gonna kidnap him and hold him for ransom but uh, i don't know what went on with the chloroform or whatever they used but they immediately suffocated him <laughs> fucking hell <laughs> yeah so um that's fioroni he ends up in prison and uh he just stays there for a few years but then he in like 1979 around the april Seventh case was offered a deal that if he admitted he was wrong and was sorry and he confessed to being part of an overarching political military structure led by Tony Negri, then they'd like give him a huge, you know, 
uh, decrease in his sentence. Yeah, and, and then when he gets murdered by anyway. Mm-hmm. So Fioroni did it. He, oh shit! Um, he took the um, he took the agreement and uh, basically cast Tony Negri in his confession as this like you know evil mastermind of all political violence in Italy, and that became the cornerstone of the so-called Calogero theorem behind the April seventh case. This fucking this philosophy professor! I swear to God, it's this philosophy professor. It's totally not all these people who like. <laughs> gather up all the molotovs it's this fucking philosophy guy you can't trust him yeah yeah the whole, i mean yeah the the whole so that's so that's the story of like what potere operaio actually did mm-hmm. versus like the story that came out about how like for the calogero theorem Potere Operaio had never actually been dismantled. It had never dissolved at all, but was always just sort of uh, secretly working in these underground sort of compartmentalized networks. So they completely ignored all the disputes that were going on and the fact that Tony Nagri like, uh, helped kind of the big split that ended the group. Mostly because the term potere operaio continued to be used. So there's yeah. like potere operaio, even before the formation of the actual group, was just like a slogan. And yeah, Lotto we Continua, operate those potatoes. Yeah. 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 The, the uh, Lotto Continua, their first sort of leaflet or newsletter was called Il Potere Operaio. Um, and then like the Potere Operaio for... group took the the it means the oh the okay the workers power yeah um the workers power you're just workers power we're the workers yeah power. yeah we got that definite um, article motherfucker <laughs> so then like yeah so potere operaio breaks apart but then there's the comitati comunisti per il potere operaio then there's the collettivi politici veneti per il potere operaio which was in padua area mm-hmm. um and and so that kind of thing continues where groups continue to use that slogan um, and they, the magistrates just use that to say that Potere Operaio had never actually dissolved. So, yep. that's the story. Yay! Yay! Crime work. <laughs> I'm, it makes me sad because, like... It, it makes me sad because so many of those people are doing that for the right reason, and then it it always turns into these like comedy of errors of just bad shit, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. It always, yeah. Where like, Oh, you want to leave? We're going to kill you. And like, Oh, we hate this Nazi. So we're going to kill his kid or, you know, like it's just, it's, I don't know. It just makes me sad. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, they did get that good art heist in though. Yes. Victimless yes. crime, uh, stealing art from rich people, since art is just kept as a way of laundering money anyway <laughs> when you're mm-hmm. wealthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're, they got that going for them. But it's I don't, I don't know. I just think it's really fascinating how they could sort of um, uh, turn this, like, theoretical corpus into, you know, a Leninist insurrectionary party model, which in itself is kind of like seems seems kind of bizarre, 
Um, I don't know. I'd have to check with the the Revolutionary Communist Party on that one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, I don't know. It just seems like a kind of a, a, a weird, maybe interesting theoretical turn with a couple of people who are like, like you were saying, like people anybody any activist has met and like could go any different direction depending on yeah. when they're born and what they have around them and um and then the movement from there into like the the real need to defend themselves against people who are going to attack them totally um in protests and then that kind of leading into these intriguing sort of secret formations within secret formations you yeah. know by that point you know something is really like probably going to go wrong and a lot yeah. did yeah i wanted to ask though margaret mm -hmm. do you have any projects that you're working on right now well anything you'd like to our our readers to or our listeners to uh to follow up with i know you have a podcast yeah if you like radical history which you probably do if you made it this far I run a podcast called Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff. It comes out every Monday and Wednesday, and every week it's a new subject. Mm -hmm. um, a recent one we did, we just covered Leonard Peltier. Actually, that one might come out after this one does. But um, the most recent thing I recorded was an episode about Leonard Peltier and the American Indian Movement. And, yeah, it covers did all kinds of stuff. Did you do one on stuff. the Young Lords? Yes. There's a four-parter on the Young Lords that came out earlier with uh, – fantastic with alinda from the band hooray for the riffraff oh no way guest. i love that band yeah i actually have a a, a vinyl record of uh one oh of their, awesome yeah. yeah and yeah and that's how i've been learning more and more about uh, these different groups i also have a podcast for preparedness that comes out every friday i'm not always the host i'm just one of the hosts called live mm -hmm. like the world is dying mm -hmm. and I my most recent book is called Escape from Incel Island, and it is a novella that is about someone who's on an island full of incels and doesn't want to be, so they must escape. Wow. Uh, that sounds wonderful. And a bunch of other stuff. I write every Wednesday. I do way too many projects. I have a Substack that I write a new essay every week. It comes out on Wednesdays. Wow. Yeah, that you have a lot half of projects. Of yeah, it's never been a never never lacked for them. Mm. But yeah, that's that's what about where your folks music? find me. Oh, I also make music. I'm in a black metal band called Feminazgul. I have a solo dark synth pop project called Nomadic War Machine. I have an electro pop project called The Lave. I have a one woman doom metal band called Vulgarite. And well, that's probably about it. <laughs> Margaret Kiljoy, thank you very much for being a guest on the Years <laughs> of Lead pod. All right. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>